0: Now, Hebrews. Smooth segue, straight in. I uh, was writing my notes this week, and I thought what I'll do is I'll write through my notes. Then at the, at the end, I'll, I'll come up with a clever introductory little thing to do. And I just thought, I'll just write intro, and then you know, go on to my, making my notes. And I didn't go back and put an introduction in. So, let me just tell you that this morning, uh, Hannah and I went for a walk around Thriber. Uh, and going along, there's kind of a, a ridge at one end, that, and it was quite windy today, and as we were walking along, there was a, a couple in front a kind of, we, we think it was Grandma and great grandma with a small child, and um, they had a, a buggy, and as they were walking along, this buggy was kind of almost taking off with the wind and they, they said when we caught up with them and said, "Oh, shall I push the buggy for you so you can get to kind of wind safety at the other end and they'd already collected the stuff from down the hill once, and the buggy was really flying, and um, yeah and eventually we got to safety. And Hannah held on to the old lady And I pushed the buggy And the child made it back All in one piece um, So that's just marvellous So um, just so you're aware That's what we spent our morning doing Now, Hebrews My uh, title for this talk is God's greatest revelation Jane Redwood's from Hebrews chapter 1 I'll just read the first three verses again And then we'll have a good look at them So it says In the past So I'll leave that there. So we're going to look at those three verses today, which um, it's quite scary. So that's what we're going to try and get through. The, the point of me telling you about the story from our this morning is that, um, well apart from kind of thinking on the hoof, is that these few verses in Hebrews give us an overview of the entire Old Testament and the New Testament all at once. It's a really, really brief one, just like my account of what went on I didn't tell you about the sharks and the alligators and the wild horses, and those sort of things. I left out the kind of minor details. But this is a really simple overview of the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of the New Testament. And the way that the writer does that, he compares three points. He says, like, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So there are the three points that he compares. And those are when, to whom, and how. Okay, so in those first uh, verse and a half he says, in the past, Old Testament we know that the past is the Old Testament for these people, so in the past God spoke so that, that was when, to whom he spoke to our forefathers and how, in many ways and through the prophets Okay, so then he goes on to the New Testament he says, but in these last days talk about the New Testament time since Jesus Jesus uh, to whom he has spoken to us and how he has spoken to us by his Son. So it's saying, in the past God spoke in all sorts of different ways and through the prophets to our forefathers and in these last days God has spoken to us through his Son. That's kind of the Old Testament and the New Testament in two nutshells put together to make a whole Bible nut. So that's what he kind of says there. So the Old Testament side. Which is Genesis to Malachi, the first kind of, um, yeah, junk of the Bible. God spoke in all sorts of different ways, and I was going through thinking, actually, what 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 different ways did God use as He spoke to His people? Well, firstly, we read in Genesis, God spoke audibly at creation; He spoke the world into existence. He also spoke audibly to Samuel as a little boy, Um, and he kept waking up and going, wait. And he then went and woke up old Eli, who probably just wanted a good night's sleep, told him to keep going back, and eventually Samuel listened to God speaking to him. God spoke through the prophets. The prophets, there's loads of books um, in the Old Testament where the prophets have written down God's words, where they spoke God's word to different people, to kings and to, to normal people. So they spoke, God spoke through the prophets with their words and with what they wrote. And he also spoke through how the prophets lived. So some of the prophets... Did really strange things. So, some of them spent time kind of walking around looking like a prisoner of war. Some of them um, spent time naked to kind of show uh, that the way Israel seemed to God. Some of them, what was it uh, Hosea, married a woman who knew that uh, God knew was going to commit adultery to him to show how Israel had treated God. So, their lives spoke about how uh, kind of spoke from God. God also spoke through angels in the Old Testament at times. And angels in the Bible were kind of not, you know, little key ring sized things with a screw in the head to put on your keys. They were enormous creatures and they terrified people when they arrived. So whenever you, um, you get to the story of Jesus' birth and the angel appears and it says, you know, fear not, don't be afraid because they're terrifying. So these are massive things and God spoke through some angels. On Mount Sinai, God spoke from the cloud and he wrote on tablets of stone and gave them to Moses, he gave them the Ten Commandments on stone and during Daniel when Jai was preaching on this, there was at one point where God spoke to uh, the, the kind of crowd in the room by his finger writing on the wall a message which would have been terrifying but, um, but God spoke so through the Old Testament we get something that theologians call progressive revelation, this kind of continued unveiling of who God is to the world so as you read through the Old Testament you get a better and better and clearer picture of who God is but actually when God speaks in those different ways he's not very subtle so kind of you know, speaking things into existence is not very subtle um, sending an angel that's enormous and terrifies people is not very subtle speaking from a cloud it's not very subtle because clouds are, tend to be quite big as well particularly in this country now God is not subtle when he speaks to people he's, he's bold and he's, he's clear and he expresses himself in an amazing way so God is not like me at a party particularly if there's loud music and dancing it's not just doesn't kind of stand in the corner looking at the corner thinking I don't want to talk to anyone and I particularly don't want to have to move because I'm quite pleased here God comes into a room and says Hello, I'm God. This is what I want to tell you. And he's very clear and very obvious with what he says. But the other thing that we just shouldn't like pass over as we as we read those verse and that verse and a half is actually the words where it says, In the past God spoke and in these last days he has spoken. It is amazing just in itself that God has spoken. That God would speak with us. How amazing is it that people like you and me can hear from God? People that just buy our shopping from Tesco's or Morrison's or or wherever you like to buy your shopping. People that stub our toe during normal life. People that have to cut their fingernails. All these boring things that we do, unless you really like shopping. Um, God would speak to us. He doesn't think anyone is too little uh, or too unimportant for him to speak to. So God speaks to us, and this God that speaks to us is Jesus. He has a name, and that's what it is. As God speaks to us, particularly for us, as we read through it, looking back to the New Testament, looking back to the Old Testament, we can see that this God, not only would he speak to us, but he gives us a name that we can call him, and his name is Jesus. So then when we look at the New Testament side of things, it says here that in these last days, which means from the book of Matthew up until now, up until when Jesus comes back, God has spoken to us. But he's not spoken to us in lots of different ways. He's not spoken to us by the prophet in that country and and a letter sent over here. He has spoken to us fully. He's revealed himself in his entirety uh, as, as much as we need. And he's done that by becoming flesh, taking on human form, Living, speaking, breathing, talking, acting with us in the person that is Jesus, the man who is God. Jesus is God's final word and Jesus is also God's divisive word to us. Um, So the readers and us, so if you can remember last week, the, the people who are receiving this letter of the Hebrews, they're people who are thinking about giving up on Christianity because it's a bit difficult and the people around them are kind of persecuting them and they think we could just chuck in the towel and go back to Judaism because that would be easier. So Jesus, in a way, is a divisive word because the readers need to know that they can only have Jesus one way. They can only have Jesus God's way. They can't choose to kind of downgrade him to an angel, which he goes on to deal with, or just a, a nice chap, um, or have a kind of you know easy-to-swallow, commoner garden, namby-pamby kind of Jesus. He needs them to know that You either have Jesus my way, or you don't take Jesus at all. And the way that the the writer goes on to do this is he gives us some is's, right? And I was asking Hannah if that's a word, and she said yes. So I said, as in there's more than one is, but not are, they're separate is's. Okay, so we've got eight is's to look at. So Jesus is eight different things. Is that, so hopefully that makes sense, what an is-is what is-is means, not what an is-is means, because that, that doesn't make sense so he gives, us first, he gives us eight is-is the first one is Jesus is God's prophetic voice to the people so this doesn't mean to start with that Jesus comes along and does away with the whole of the Old Testament well after all, Jesus himself he was a Jew he um, you know, he lives out the Old Testament he, he does all the things that the Old Testament asks of him but outside of Jesus if, we kind of, if you miss Jesus if you take Jesus out of the equation which some of these people were thinking of doing their Old Testament was only partial it didn't have everything that God wanted to show them, it was only kind of a fragment, it was a kind of preparation, it was trying to get them ready for what was going to happen when Jesus came and it was incomplete But in Jesus, God spoke and God speaks and he speaks fully, he speaks decisively, completely and finally. So Jesus is God's prophetic voice to the world. I'm just going to read you a quote that I found um, as I was reading through some things this week. Um, It's not from like the Beano, it's from a a commentary on Hebrews and uh, it says, Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God Jesus reflected it. Isaiah expounded the nature of God as holy, righteous and merciful. Jesus manifested it. Jeremiah described the power of God. Jesus displayed it. He has far surpassed the best of the prophets of earlier times. And these wavering Christians must listen to his voice. I thought that was a great way of kind of summing up the idea that Jesus is God's final prophetic voice to his people so that's the first is the second one so that was where he says you know but God has spoken through our, um to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us and how has he done that he's spoken to us because Jesus is God's son he has spoken by his son But why does the reader need to say that Jesus is God's son? You'd think that they would kind of get that if they were thinking about being Christians or they thought they were Christians. You'd think that they would get this idea that Jesus is God's son. Well, basically, in their their temptation to go back to Judaism, their temptation to go back to things that they knew, things that uh, the Romans would allow, they, they tried to kind of downgrade him to just becoming a good man or a captivating teacher or just a kind of impressive leader that they could follow. That's the, That was the kind of Jesus that some of these people had. But if they lose Jesus as the Son of God, they lose their salvation. There's a verse in, in Acts where it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. But the problem is, if they take Jesus and they say that this Jesus, he's just a good man. You know, he's just a good man. They, they miss out on the fact that, that he's God. If he's just a good man, if all he is is just an ordinary chap like you and me, then there's no way that they can possibly have any kind of salvation. If, we, if the Jesus that, that we have or that they have is just a good man, there's no way that he can be perfect. Because he was you know, born He was the way that we are. He was, he was born in sin. So if he's not perfect, he can't fulfil all the things that the Messiah had to do to be perfect. If Jesus is just a captivating, a captivating teacher, he's just somebody that tells you about something he's learned. But the deal is with Jesus, that he's not just a teacher of something he's learned. He's the one that is telling you about who he is, because he is God. He, he is the message as well as the person telling the message. And Jesus is not just an impressive leader. He's not the one that says, I've got the map, this is the way that we should be going. Jesus says, I am the way. So he's not just an impressive leader. He is the only way to God. So he's not just a good man. He's not just a captivating teacher. He's not an impressive leader. But he is God's only son. And then the writer goes on to say, uh, as he says that God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is God's appointed heir. And he goes on later on to call Jesus uh, God's firstborn son in this chapter. So because Jesus is God's firstborn, he is God's rightful heir. According to this, Jesus is going to inherit the universe. I mean, we can't really comprehend how big the universe is. We don't know if it's getting slightly bigger getting slightly smaller, if it kind of wobbles in that same shape if it's round, if it's square, if it's saddle shaped apparently it could be We, we don't know these answers but according to the Bible it belongs to Jesus every single speck of it is his but the amazing thing is that if all of that belongs to Jesus and later on So he he starts off this letter and he says that Jesus is going to inherit all things. Later on we learn that if we, as Christians, become one with Jesus, not only do we belong to Jesus, but we get to share in everything that he inherits. We become co-heirs with Jesus. So Jesus is going to inherit the universe, and as Christians we become co-heirs with him. Jesus is willing to share all of his goodness and all of his amazing things with us. There's a slightly strange order that the writer uses. So he says that, that he is the appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So Jesus is also God's creative agent. But isn't it weird that he says he's the appointed heir and then he's the created, the kind of creative agent? Because you'd think that if you were going to be appointed an heir, you would want to be appointed the heir of something? Because he's the kind of saying that, you know. Jesus is appointed an heir and then he goes on to create the universe but in this we can see that Jesus was God before the foundation of the world, this is what these guys need to hear they need to know that Jesus was there he wasn't somebody who was adopted by God later Um, for some people some people think that uh, Jesus' baptism or or some kind of way around that time that to kind of get through the difficulty of saying that Jesus is God and and his man, they say, well, at Jesus' baptism, what happened was God kind of found him and adopted him at that point and made him God's son. But the writer to the Hebrew says, that is not how it was. Jesus was always there in the beginning. And through him, God created the world. But the comfort that these Christians can feel in a time of chaos in their life is knowing that their religion is uh, illegal, basically, that the chaos that's going on all around them The God who created the world, who created the universe, out of chaos can surely have big enough and safe enough hands to keep them safe in the chaos and the trouble of their lives. As soon as they realise that this is the same person who creates the world, in their struggles that they're going through, at their little point in history at that time, they know that this same person can keep them safe. Then he says, the sun is the radiance of... Of God's glory. So Jesus is, this is number, whatever. Uh, Jesus is God's personified glory. So somehow, God has managed to to box up His glory in in skin and bone and put that as Jesus on the earth for us to look at. So for the Hebrew people, the glory of God, it was a visible um, a visible and a kind of outward expression of the majestic presence of God. But if these people realise that that's who Jesus is, there's this person who effectively was, he was like all the amazing experiences of the Old Testament, walking around um, and meeting with people. So he was like uh, an amazing burning bush experience, he was like a Mount Sinai experience, he was like Somebody going in and meeting with God in the tent of meeting, and he was like the temple. And that's what Jesus was as he walked around. Jesus was this amazing um, presence and expression of God's glory as he walked around. There's a bit in the Old Testament where the Ark of God, the kind of golden boxes, captured and taken away, and um, and there is also a guy in the Old Testament called Ichabod. I think I don't know if that's quite how you pronounce it. But his name literally means inglorious. But apparently in synagogues today, there's a, it says on them, I think it says in Hebrew, which means like Ichabod in English. And that means the glory departed. And the reason for, for them that the glory is departed is because they've not accepted Jesus, who is God's glory. However, when they hear this, when uh, this letter is being read, the temple still stands in Jerusalem God's glory is present in the temple um, Apart from the fact that the, the curtain's been Torn down at, at the cross They kind of look at that and they see God's presence in this, in this building So they may be thinking Actually we've still got the temple oh, However a few years later It's destroyed and, um, yeah, and I don't know what they would think then When they come back to, to maybe look at this letter again So Jesus is the radiance Of God's glory I was trying to find a kind of tangible way of explaining this, and this is my my effort at at this. If you imagine uh, the, the sun with a U, the big shiny orangey thing that sits in the sky and goes up and down for day and night, I think we all know what the sun is. If you imagine that that is God the Father, the only way we know that the sun is there is by the rays of heat and light that it gives off. If it didn't give off, Heat and light. We wouldn't know it was there because we wouldn't be able to see it. And we wouldn't be able to see anything, and we'd also be dead because it'd be freezing. But if, that's, if God the Father is the Son, and the rays of heat and light it gives off is like Jesus kind of bringing God, God's presence and God's warmth and God's love to us, and the Spirit then is the one who kind of brings us out and encourages us to sunbathe. You know, so that is kind of my idea there. That God the Father is brought to us by the Son, and the Spirit encourages us to get out there and just bask in the glory of the Son. So God is a personal God and therefore God's glory is a personal glory. And that personal glory is Jesus. Next one. So Jesus is God's perfect revelation. He goes on to say that um, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being Basically, the writer says if you want to see what God looks like, if you want to know what God is like, have a look at Jesus. Because he's the exact representation of God's being. Look at Jesus and you'll see what the God of the Old Testament is like. The God of the Old Testament is perfectly and fully revealed in Jesus. And there's a word in there that kind of can be can be translated as imprint or stamp. So the idea is that. That Jesus is the kind of stamp that, uh, that kind of God gives off. So if you imagine in in the Royal Mint, wherever it is, the the die that they hit, they probably use a machine now rather than a hammer. But the, the die is what gives the impression of like the Queen's face, and the impression that's given is the the impression. But it's kind of they're the, exactly the same thing, aren't they? They give exactly the same picture. So the the picture here is that God is stamped. All over Jesus. And I'm not suggesting Jesus walked around with like loads of first or second class stamps on him. But he was just the exact representation of God. God is literally, the word here comes from uh, engraved. Jesus is literally engraved by God. And God's nature, the actual kind of being of God, is here in Jesus. And the, the Greek word that it uses hypostasis. Don't actually know what that means but it's kind of God's actual being is in Jesus. So it says if you want to know, if you want to see, and if you want to savour God, you have to marvel at Jesus. So the next one, second to last one. Is that Jesus is God's cosmic sustainer. Because it says, uh, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the Jews were certain, and these people that are reading this letter would have been certain from their upbringing that it was God's sustaining power that, and his control that held the universe together. And the writer here just says, look, the person whose hands are holding the universe together, those hands belong to Jesus. He's holding the universe together. He is the one who sustains all things. Jesus spoke the universe into existence, Jesus sustains it by his word. I think he kind of wants them to just get the picture again. That Look, if you are thinking that you're going through a time of trouble, if you're going through a time of difficulty, if the persecution feels hard, realise that the hands that you can put yourself in are eternally secure. They're impossibly powerful and they're immeasurably mighty. But he wants to say, put yourself in Jesus' hands. If he can speak the world into existence, if he can speak it into being sustained, his hands are the safest place for you to put yourself. And here the writer kind of shifts gear slightly, and he he goes on to say, for the last one, um, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the last one is that Jesus is God's unique sacrifice. The reason he kind of shifts gear a little bit is because he's been going on about, uh, in a reverent way, he's been going on about who Jesus is. So he's done who Jesus is. So he said that Jesus is, I better get my list so I don't forget them, uh, God's prophetic voice, he is God's son, he's God's appointed A, he's God's creative agent, he is God's personified glory, he's God's perfect revelation, he's God's cosmic sustainer. And now he says, what Jesus has done is he has been God's unique sacrifice. So by now, as you read through the first three verses of the letter to the Hebrews, there should be an amazing picture of this man who is God, this Jesus forming in our minds. And it's the, the same Jesus who is all these ises who became God's unique sacrifice. All of the Old Testament law, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll you know, if you start thinking, oh, I'm going to read the Bible, beginning to end, you'll hit Leviticus and think, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here. And if you plough on and get through Leviticus, you'll hit Numbers and Deuteronomy and you'll get most of those laws all again. But Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. But the difference for us standing this side of the cross is that we don't come to the Old Testament and read it as the Jews did. And for them, the, the kind of call in the Old Testament was, do this. For us as we come to to look at the Old Testament, to look at the New Testament, the call for us is is different because Jesus is God's unique sacrifice. God looks at that and he says, no longer do this, trust this. God's call is, is not about doing the acts of the law. For us it's now looking to Jesus and trusting him. The New Testament is about Jesus who perfectly kept the law, And he became the sacrifice that in the Old Testament all the the goats, the sheep, the bulls, the pigeons, the doves the the grain, the wheat, the oil and the wine all pointed towards, they all pointed towards a bigger and a better and a perfect sacrifice and that one was Jesus and it was a one time thing and at that one time act of sacrifice all the world's sin, all the sin that was in the world yours and mine were placed on Jesus Jesus And he gave himself up to death on a cross so that he could rid us of our sin and that we may share in his amazing inheritance of the whole of the universe alongside him. And the the call to us is, trust this. That's what the Bible says. It says Jesus came, Jesus was perfect. Jesus was God's son, Jesus was God's heir, he's God's prophetic voice, he's all these different things. And you need to take those things, you need to weigh them and you need to say to yourself I want to trust this man who is God. I want to put my life in his hands because he's secure, he's safe. Or I don't. And if we put our life in his hands, our sin is dealt with. All of that goes. And we receive his righteousness and we receive a share in his inheritance. So Jesus is God's greatest revelation. The writer gives us a massive picture of who Jesus is. He gives us a picture of Jesus as the answer to all our fears and our worries. He doesn't say that believing in Jesus will get rid of our fears and our worries. But he gives us a bigger picture of Jesus. that kind of say, actually there's fears and worries. I don't need to be fearful. I don't need to be worried so much. Because my prize is much, much greater. And hopefully when we we read it, we should see exactly the same as they did. We should see a massive picture of Jesus. We should see God's perfect son, who is his appointed heir, who's going to give his life, who gave his life for the sin of the world. So the call for us, as it was for these guys who are reading it, is to fall on our knees and worship this God, this Jesus, who is the king of the universe. But the amazing truth is that if we fall on our knees and we worship Jesus, He's not going to leave us as people who are kind of his subjects in his kingdom. But he wants us to share in his his inheritance. He makes us not just subjects, but brothers and sisters in his kingdom. So ultimately, Jesus is God's greatest revelation. He goes through the Old Testament. He lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death. And he asks us to put all of our sin on him. Let us take his righteousness. And to live an eternity with him sharing in the universe that he's created and ultimately we have to decide will we do that or won't we do that and for these guys that are receiving this letter it's tricky, there's persecution but hopefully as they read through this letter they saw a picture of Jesus that was just enormous and they said, you know what that is much better than the trouble I kind of think I'm going to go through I'm going to fall at Jesus' feet. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to give my life to him. And hopefully for us here, that is exactly the same response that we will give to him. So I'll pray and then we'll sing again. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that he is um, yeah, he is wonderful, that he is marvellous. Father, we thank you that you spoke to us. Father, we thank you that we can know you because You chose to spoke. We didn't have to play some enormous elaborate game of hide and seek to find you, that you revealed yourself to us. And Father, we thank you that you didn't do that just by words, but you did that in a person. And Father, thank you that we can know and love that person. Father, we thank you that that person, that Jesus, is the one who gave his life to take away the sins of the whole world. And Father, I pray that you would impress that on our hearts. Father, make us see a bigger picture of Jesus than we ever thought we could. Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals and a God who reveals yourself. Father, I pray that um, for all of us today that we would see Jesus as somebody bigger and greater than we did before. Amen.